0: RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Theragun. Try the Theragun Gen 4 for 30 days, starting at only $199 at slash mission log.
2: This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss, Hero Collector, and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at Herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping.
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 375, Dr. Bashir, I Presume.
2: Thou, I presume?
0: Mr. Champion, I presume?
2: Well, I presume that means that you and I are about to embark on this week's episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast.
0: This week, Dr. Bashir, I presume? Well, that's a bit presumptuous, don't you think? I presume so. It's the one with Dr. Bashir and the other doctor.
2: Well, I'll presume not to keep you from your duties and ask you to get along with the contact information.
0: Of which I do not presume that anyone knows or has memorized, so here's how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there. And if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is MissionLog at roddenberry.com And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log.
2: All right, we'll get to trivia in just a second, but first a word from our friends at Eagle Moss Hero Collector. And wait a minute. Now, Norman, last time I checked, uh, this is a Star Trek podcast, but we've got ships from the Orville now. <laughs> yes, developed in partnership with and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, the ships of the brand new The Orville official ships collection, available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Uh, let's see here. The first ships in the collection, well, the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville ECV-197 and its shuttle, ECV-197-1, are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only twenty nine ninety five each with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville available for only $74.95. No matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout and get 10% off your entire purchase.
0: You're absolutely right, John. This is a Star Trek podcast, and we are talking about the Orville collectible (laughs) ships, but it's because they're from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. And you can count on them for the same type of quality that you would get in your Star Trek ships because they're based still on a study of the models created for use in the series. They're highly detailed, just like the Eagle Moss Star Trek ships. They're made of the same die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials and then hand-painted for stunning accuracy. Each ship also comes with a display base plus a collector's magazine filled with concept art, interviews, and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series. And if you're a collector of the Star Trek line, you know how good those magazines are and all of their attentions to detail. Additional ships are slated to join the collection soon, but these are the ones you want to get while you can.
2: I have to admit, I love the design of these ships, and I I was lucky enough to go to Comic-Con a couple of years ago and see their huge, like, museum exhibit with all the original models. They are gorgeous, and like you said, we know what a good job Eagle Moss does. These look gorgeous as well. So, Full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information, can be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use your code MISSION10, that's mission one MISSION10, at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase.
0: Now, John, I presume that you have prepared trivia, so here is the trivia, I presume? You presume right. Trivia for Dr. Bashir, I
2: presume. The story here is by Jimmy Diggs, a new name for us um, on DS9. But this is one of those great Hollywood stories of successfully pitching to a TV show. Jimmy was not a professional writer and not unlike a character in today's episode, found himself knocking around to and from various jobs for a good part of his adult life. One of those gigs, some light acting work on a series, led him to testing the waters with a script pitch to a producer friend. That series had been canceled, but the script found its way to Jerry Taylor, who liked it enough to then bring in Jimmy as a writing intern. Around the same time, Jimmy had also pitched this story to DS9, and it sat languishing for so long, a year and a half, that Jimmy didn't believe it when Ron Moore called him to talk about buying the story. So that's where Ronald D. Moore enters, and he gets the teleplay credit, although he had a good bit of help from Renee Echevarria on this one, too. It's always interesting to me when we come across a production schedule like this where it just shows that there isn't any one tried-and-true path to crafting a story for TV or for a movie the original pitch had flipped the A and B stories, but Ron and Renee and Ira all liked the idea of exploring Dr. Bashir a bit more, since so there was so much unknown detail about his life before Deep Space Nine. They struggled with the idea of what his secret could be and settled on genetic engineering, since it had largely been unexplored on Star Trek. This episode was directed by David Livingston. It's been a little while since we mentioned david he was pulling double duty for a number of years as a supervising producer and frequent director on the various trek shows of the period the last ds9 episode he directed that we discussed was the muse back in season four but all throughout this time he had been directing a number of voyager episodes as well so the title uh dr bashir i presume and Dr. Zimmerman's first line are a reference to an actual historical moment. Dr. Livingstone, I presume. The real Dr. David Livingstone was a Scottish missionary and explorer who was determined, among other things, to discover the source of the Nile River. Over the course of his many years in Africa, he became famous, but then his correspondence dropped off for the better part of six years, when it appears that his letters out didn't make it through. A reporter for the New York Herald, Henry Morton Stanley, was sent to find Dr. Livingstone in 1869. He did, and uh, uttered the famous phrase to which Dr. Livingstone replied, Yes, I feel thankful that I'm here to welcome you. Or, except that may not have happened. Yes, uh, Stanley found Livingstone, who died a few years later from malaria. The papers reported the exchange as a direct quote, but Stanley had torn those pages out of his personal diary and may have just opted for a more dramatic piece of dialogue. Let's talk about guest stars. Well, of course, we welcome back Chase Masterson as Lita. As Bashir's parents, Richard is played by Brian George, and Amsha, is played by Fadwa L. Green D. Uh, Brian has got just a massive resume with nearly 300 professional acting credits and some very high profile projects and as a voice actor lots of genre credits there like Batman Green Lantern and Star Wars The Clone Wars. He is extremely recognizable for recurring TV roles on shows such as The Big Bang Theory and Seinfeld where he played Babu in a handful of memorable episodes. Seriously, you've seen him all over the place and I love his work and so much and he really does work a lot. Just go look him up. He's a bit of a chameleon here. While Dr. Bashir has a very polished erudite English accent, his father's is a bit more working class. In real life, Brian's parents were raised in India, though his father was born in Iraq and moved to London when Brian was just a year old. So he grew up with a polished British accent, but he plays Indian or Pakistani roles very often. The longer he's been in the US, you'll hear his accent slip into something more American from time to time. By the way, uh, Brian George is only 14 years older than Alexander Siddig. We won't see him back as Richard on DS9, but we will see Brian in another role on an episode of Voyager. Oh, and uh, there just happens to be another sci-fi show where you can catch Brian George in their pilot episode, The Orville. Check it out. Now, Fadwa El Gwindi, by contrast, is not an actor. In fact, she was an anthropology professor at UCLA and an expert in issues of the Middle East, leading her at one point to be a presidential advisor during the Clinton administration. It just happened that she was an understudy and had to go on one night in a community theater production of a show that she wrote about Arab American experience. It so happened that a casting agent saw the performance and despite her nervousness, was invited to take this role on Star Trek. Finally, Robert Picardo as Dr. Lewis Zimmerman and his own hologram. Yes, you know him best as the cowboy from inner space and you probably knew him on tv in a couple of high-profile series in the late 80s and early 90s like the wonder years in china beach of course in 1995 he premiered right along with the series pilot for voyager as the holographic emergency medical hologram and the rest as they say is history other than the emh showing up in the film star trek first contact this is the only crossover the character has until you get into things like video games and themed attractions, but those are stories for another time.
1: Could this be the Star Trek Deep Space Nine Star Trek Voyager crossover that lives up to the glory days of every bionic individual fighting Big Boop? Let's find out.
0: Prologue. In Quarks, on his typical break time, and waiting for her typical break time, Rom is mustering up the courage to ask out Lita and to prove to himself, but especially to his brother, that he's ready to take that next step to ask her out. And as he's finally summoned up enough courage to say hello to Lita during her break, he just as quickly said goodbye to her, leaving Lita once again. At the mercy of her confusion about Rom and Corp's observations about her, um, brains. Meanwhile, after beating Dr. Bashir in a game of darts, Chief O'Brien discusses the finer points of balancing fatherly time with Molly and the new baby, encouraging Julian to give fatherhood a try sometime. However, their conversation is suddenly interrupted by the arrival of Dr. Louis Zimmerman, the director of holographic imaging and programming at Jupiter Station, who has a proposal for Dr. Bashir? He intends to make him immortal. Act one in captain Cisco's quarters. Dr. Zimmerman outlines a general overview of his reason for visiting deep space nine, which is to create the LMH, the long-term medical hologram, the next evolutionary stage of the EMH, the emergency medical hologram, which he patterned after himself. The LMH will provide longer and more sustained medical support to environments where living space and life support are more of a premium. Dr. Bashir has been selected to be the template for the LMH, and Dr. Zimmerman requires at least three weeks on the station, complete with all of the necessary resources in order for him to complete his research on Dr. Bashir. Captain Sisko beams with pride as he congratulates Dr. Bashir on such an honor. After leaving the captain's office in the infirmary, As Julian is filling out Dr. Zimmerman's rather lengthy and somewhat invasive questionnaire, which ranges from childhood eating habits to personal likes and dislikes, Dr. Zimmerman explains that the more comprehensive the data, the better the LMH will be at socializing with patients from weeks to months on end if necessary. O'Brien can't help but take a shot at his best friend saying, if this thing works, you'll be able to irritate hundreds of people you've never even met. Exasperated with such banter, Dr. Zimmerman optically scans Julian, directing him to just stand there and look like a doctor, if he can. Later at Quarks, perched atop the second level, both Zimmerman and Bashir are entranced with Lita, who is working her dabo wheel, and fending off a very grabby Morn. Bashir tells Zimmerman that they used to be together, but Lita broke off their relationship. Feigning professional curiosity, Zimmerman mentions that he will add her to the list of his interviews, with both family and friends, which will help him round out the data for the LMH program. However, Bashir asks Zimmerman to leave his parents out of the process as their relationship is currently estranged. As Dr. Bashir leaves to tend to a quarantine matter with Odo, Zimmerman makes a note to contact Bashir's parents immediately. Act two. In the infirmary, Dr. Zimmerman activates his very first test run on the LMH upon which the real Dr. Bashir feels that he, or rather it, is somewhat lacking in the zest of his true personality. Noting to make the LMH more zesty, Dr. Zimmerman activates his current EMH who immediately feels threatened by the younger, newer model. But that doesn't last long as the EMH is immediately deactivated once its base parameters are uploaded to the LMH. And much to Dr. Bashir's chagrin, the LMH, even though it may look like him, Sounds more like Zimmerman. However, Zimmerman does assuage Julian's concerns, as the LMH will in fact be reprogrammed based on the data gathered from the questionnaire and the upcoming interviews with Bashir's friends and colleagues. As Zimmerman's interviews progress, he gathers a multitude of fascinating insights into Dr. Bashir, from Captain Sisko, Kira, Dax, Worf, Jake, and even Morn, who shrugs must speak volumes. Every interview is laced with a certain level of honesty, and it is ultimately Chief O'Brien who paints the most positive picture about Julian, admitting that his friend is an extraordinary person with many great qualities. However, at the end of his final interview with Lita, Dr. Zimmerman cannot help but to ask her out to dinner. Later that evening in Quark's, Rom sits quietly at a table for one as he forlornly looks around the restaurant. Up on the second level, he observes Dr. Zimmerman and Lita having a very romantic dinner together. Focusing his lobes on their discussion, Rom overhears their discussion taking a very romantic turn, which prompts him to barge in on their dinner, only to embarrass himself once again, this time using the excuse of fixing her replicator to sidestep what he really wanted to ask. Meanwhile, in Sisko's office, Dax interrupts briefly to tell Julian that special guests have arrived to see him. Dr. Bashir's surprise turns into dismay as he reluctantly and sheepishly introduces Captain Sisko to Richard and Amsha Bashir, his parents. Act 3. No sooner than Julian could usher them out of the captain's office did Richard Bashir begin regaling Sisko and Dax with anecdote after embarrassing anecdote of Julian, who was standing behind them looking as if he wished he were anywhere else but in that room. Finally wrestling them away from Captain Sisko, to find quarters for their emergency stay. Later, Julian storms into his own infirmary and confronts Dr. Zimmerman, accusing him of ignoring and disrespecting his one request to leave his parents out of the interview process. Unconcerned with Julian's emotional outburst, Dr. Zimmerman responds very unapologetically and clinically that Julian's parents are vital to the success of programming the LMH's behavioral program. But any further discussion on the matter will have to wait, as Dr. Zimmerman has a very important delivery to make to Lita's quarters. Upon arriving, Lita is just finishing a shower while Dr. Zimmerman is fumbling around her quarters looking for a vase, all the while trying to convince her to come with him back to Jupiter Station, where he set up an opportunity for her to run the station cafe. Taken by surprise by the prospect of starting a whole new life and career, she not only exposes her excitement for such a change, but embarrassingly, herself as well. Dr. Zimmerman has given her plenty to think about. If only she had a reason to stay on the station. Meanwhile, Dr. Bashir is engaged in a dinner conversation which devolved from small talk about his father's entrepreneurial illusions of grandeur as a landscape architect, to Julian's controversial decision to study frontier medicine, and finally, to Julian's stressing to them how important it is for them to take Dr. Zimmerman's interviews with the utmost seriousness because there is a secret that they all have kept for over 25 years. And if it ever got out, it would be the end of Julian's career, both on deep space nine and in Starfleet. Act four in the replimat, Lita and Rom are deep in conversation about her new life opportunities. Lita hoping that Rom would give her a reason to stay amidst his waffling and trying to do so. And encouraging Lita to maybe take the job, Lita leaves angry and upset, leaving Ram alone and deflated. Meanwhile in the infirmary, Richard and Amsha visit Julian to make amends for the emotional stress that they all regretted after dinner the other night. They promise to never discuss Julian's genetic enhancement and DNA resequencing with Dr. Zimmerman and tell Julian how proud they are of him and what he's achieved. As they leave, a stunned Chief O'Brien and Dr. Zimmerman appear from around the corner, having overheard the entire conversation that the Bashirs confessed to the LMH and not their actual son. When Julian discovers what happened, he's furious with Miles and Dr. Zimmerman for believing that they purposefully used the LMH deceptively, resulting in the Bashirs' confession about the real Julian's genetically engineered abilities. As Miles tries to make sense of the magnitude of his best friend's monumental secret, Julian tells him about a young Jules Bashir, who was so developmentally challenged, he could barely comprehend the most basic learning skills. So, his parents had no choice but to put him through illegal treatments, which changed him forever, changed him at the cellular level. Thus, a new Julian Bashir was born, and one that to this day sees himself as a fraud, But Miles tries to convince him that genetic enhancements aren't what gives him compassion, ambition, or personality. Be that as it may, Julian knew that one day his secret would be discovered, and that he's ready to face what will ultimately be the end of his career with Starfleet. Act 5. As Rom sits at the bar, wondering if he should have confessed his true feelings to Lita. Cork is quick to remind him that the last time he entertained such nonsense, it saddled him with a son, and even worse, Rom was taken for all of his money. At least Cork has a holo-sweet program, Vulcan's Love Slave Part 2, The Revenge, to take Rom's mind off of Lita. In the Bashir's quarters, Richard is trying to find a way out of this entire situation, while Julian calls out for his father for what he really is and always has been, a schemer dodging responsibility wherever and however it suited him. Julian lashes out at Richard, making him admit that he was ashamed of his mentally deficient six-year-old son to the point of not even allowing him to grow up as he was, developmental problems and all. But Amsha declared that they did so out of love, not out of shame, and told Julian that she could not bear watching her son always falling behind because of something that they could have prevented during the pregnancy and... After a moment of calm, Julian admits that all he wants to do now is to explain the situation to Captain Sisko and quietly leave the station. The next day, as Dr. Bashir is about to confess everything to Captain Sisko, he's not only met by Benjamin, but his parents and Rear Admiral Bennett as well. Richard has confessed to being the one who took Julian for genetic enhancements and, for the first time in his life, is ready to stand up and face the consequences meaning a two-year sentence in a New Zealand minimum security prison, in exchange for Julian to keep his commission with Starfleet and his medical license. As Admiral Bennett lays out the conditions of the sentence, he reminds all present how genetic manipulation paved the way for the eugenics wars, and for every Dr. Bashir that is created, there is the potential for another Khan Singh waiting in the wings. Later at the airlock, Dr. Bashir says goodbye to his parents and promises to visit more often. As soon as the Bashirs depart, Dr. Zimmerman and Lita are also ready to board their shuttle back to Jupiter Station. Screaming, Wait! At the top of its lungs, Ram appears in the nick of time and finally declares his love for Lita as Dr. Zimmerman graciously steps aside and follows behind another beautiful woman boarding the shuttlecraft. Finally, back at the dartboard in Quarks, Julian and Miles are back at it with miles now feeling patronized about all of the games he's won in the past against his best friend who has had genetically enhanced coordination all the while he challenges julian to play for real now to really play to which julian happily obliges with a triple bullseye the end norm you just you did it and you didn't
2: even know it in your recap grabby morn that is my new band name
0: what kind of music would grabby morn play
2: uh, I'm gonna say that they're an R.E.O. Speedwagon cover band.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I dig that.
2: Yeah. Cool. Cool. Or,
0: or you know, maybe maybe Air Supply. So their their hit single would be like "Making Love with No Words at All." <laughs>
2: that's, that that would be it. That would. Uh, that's so perfect. So yeah. perfect. So, uh, by the way, speaking of covers, I'm just gonna go ahead and say that Lita, she's having a cover food. Uh, yeah, they call it Hasperat for the Bajorans. It's a turkey wrap. Okay. So it, it, it's a, totally a cover. It looked good. It did. I mean, she had three nice big rolls there. I wouldn't turn it down. I'm just saying, you give it a fancy name, and you're like, "Here, here's your turkey wrap." Oh no, no, no! If we're going to charge you extra. This
0: is Hosperat. Would you mind if I became Lecherous Quark for a second? <laughs> right Another in. really good band name.
2: Yeah, that. Oh, no. that is good. That they're a Supertramp uh, cover band.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not a Rick James cover band. Mm, it could be that too. Yeah. But, you know, being lechery uh, quirk, uh, speaking of looking good, mm-hmm. the line with Lita I have brains. Of course you do, honey. That's why I hired you. Now lead yeah. up and take those brains back to the Dabo wheel where the customers can get a good look at them. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Much down-angling in that in that scene, too.
2: There was, yeah. And look, we could spend an hour with people who are probably far better uh, dissectors and discussers of a scene like that than you and I would be. Mm. But it to me, it does come down to one of those things that's like, okay, is the show serving up this bit correctly? Because it's about the character who's having that reaction. And uh, does the show have an obligation to just play that character the way that character would be? But are they also being a bit lascivious in the way they're serving that up to us, the audience? You know, so
0: I also think I mean, uh, to be fair to the scene and to character, one, mm-hmm. it is consistent with Ferengi culture. Sure. You know, yep. and and two, it does kind of bookend itself later on in the episode. Yeah. But I just the thing is, is that I don't think that that's why Rom is attracted to Lita.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think they I think they serve that pretty well. Throughout Well, throughout every interaction that we've had with Rom and Vita so far. So there is a, a genuine feel to their relationship. Something that is not genuine, uh, the TV contrived dramatic reveal, which mm-hmm. would be that scene where you have Dr. Zimmerman coming in, introducing himself and what he's about to do. But nobody decided to send an email to Dr. Bashir first. Or does Cisco, for that matter. He just shows up like, I'm Zimmerman. I'm going to make you immortal. Here, now you're going to get scanned for this hologram program. Like, wh- it, nobody decided to say, uh, guess what? In a couple of weeks, uh, Dr. Lewis Zimmerman is going to show up, and here's what he's asking to do. Uh, do you want to be a part of this?
0: <laughs> you know? do, you, do you think they, they did that in a way so that Bashir didn't have time to prepare?
2: Well, oh, of any- course, that's the way you justify it in the the logic of the script i may be looking at this a little too real world which is just look this is a big project i think even if you just showed up on an ounce like that it would take somebody a little while to decide if they actually wanted to be a part of it
0: oh yeah well by the yeah. way clear all those surgeries that you have because I, right. my time is premium yeah yeah of course right? of course yeah <laughs> You know, I thought it was a nice bit of writing Um, right before Zimmerman walks in and Mm -hmm. offers Bashir immortality. Chief O'Brien is talking about fatherhood and traditionally fatherhood or parenthood is kind of a way of achieving immortality in Mm. a sense through your Mm -hmm. children and their children's children. Your paternal name will live on or the name that you choose to live on will live on. So I thought Mm. it was almost kind of like a nice segue, like right into Here's how you're going to be immortal, but Bashir just before that says I'm not the family type.
2: Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Now wait, are you saying that O'Brien has children? Cuz I'm I'm drawing a blank here. As far uh, as I
0: know, he okay. has he, he has two, one we never see wow. and the other one that Kira was carrying. Oh,
2: okay. So two yeah. we never see.
0: Um, uh, yeah, one's usually at her parents with Keiko got it. And the other one is, uh, somewhere with Kira in her quarters. Okay. And
2: remind me Keiko. Uh, I'm sure she'll show up again. Okay.
0: Also someone who is with her mom. Yeah. Oh, got most it. Of the time. Okay. Got it. Got but, it. Yeah. If not, if, if not possessed by yeah. a, a paw wraith. Yeah.
2: <laughs> because that it could happen by the way, not a really heavy discussion topic, not too much to add here to this but and I know that we'll get to a lot more of it in Voyager, but I do love the idea of you know telemedicine and eventually kind of AI medicine holography, sure, if you can make something that interactive in a real world you know three d environment great uh, but this is cool i I like the idea of being able to program something that has more medical knowledge than any one person could have and have instant recall, instant access to the best techniques. You know, if we all live long enough, then I hope we get to that day.
0: I mean, I love seeing Robert Picardo in in pretty much anything and having him Mm. as Zimmerman and then as the EMH. with Bashir as the LMH and himself. That was a great scene. Yes, it was. was And and produced well,
2: like uh, just Mm -hmm. technically that was produced really well.
0: Yeah. But my thing is with the the holograms though is that they have to rely on power sources. Yeah. If those power sources get corrupted or destroyed or whatever. Like say for instance, mm-hmm. yes, we're going to send the LMH onto these planets that are really, you know, either hard to you know, to be around, unmanageable, small living quarters, et cetera. Et cetera. Mhm. So what happens if they're on the frontier, they get attacked, power plant goes out? Yeah. How long is the backup Ooh. system gonna you know yeah. last for?
2: Yeah, well then then you have a hard decision to make. You know, divert alternate power to the EMH. <laughs> you know, yeah. I guess it's the only call. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like that little bit of dialogue. You know, where uh, uh, Zimmerman is giving Bashir all these orders, and Bashir's reading over them later to Miles. You know, compare your eating habits at the age of five, ten, fifteen, twenty, 20, twenty-five. And it's funny, but there is this great entry point here into the idea of what else doctors do. You know, the bedside manner and injecting a bit of personality into the doctor-patient interaction, which Zimmerman does not have a great personality, but at least he understands the idea of this being necessary. And speaking of his poor personality, uh, Bashir, of course, says, I wonder if you could not interview my parents. And Zimmerman's like, OK, note interview parents. It, it's like telling someone not to bully your little brother. I'm sorry, your little brother is about to get beat up every day
0: at school. All right. When you put it like when you when you plead to an authority figure to not do something. Uh, how many times have we seen this in in? either TV or movies, like, don't please don't do that. Mm -hmm. Of course it's going to be done. Of course it's going to be done. Yeah. And that's just, that's just a red flag in general. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't know if there was a cut scene between that moment where, you know, when, when Dr. Zimmerman says, just stand there and, you know, look like a doctor if you can, Mm -hmm. to, hey, who's that, you know, in quarks when they're leaning over the rail, looking directly at Lita and the Dabo wheel with Grabby Morn, you know, with his opening act. Right. I'm like, That's that's pretty that's a pretty abrupt jump cut when you think about it from from a uh, environment point of view.
2: Yeah, exactly. They they tended to compress the time there. You'd have to hope that there was a much bigger gap uh, between those two scenes. Speaking of compressed time, the Bashirs live on Earth, right? Because Zimmerman calls them up and then boom, they are there the next day. I thought DS9 was really far away. Like if you if you get a phone call, you might have something else to do. Like, oh, okay, I can't come tomorrow because I have this. You know, I'm designing a park or whatever Richard's up to at the moment. But no, they are there the next day when apparently it usually takes longer to get from DS nine to Earth. But hey, we're we're just compressing scenes all over the place.
0: But I mean, with the insertion of the parents, and I think that so many people have experienced this where. People don't like it when their worlds and lives collide. Yes. They like their work life being separate. They like their real life or home life being separate. They like their social life being separate. Yes. But once (laughs) I can't help but laugh because once that barrier is lifted and then say, you know, your parents are talking to your teacher who you have a completely different relationship with at school, or they're talking to your boss who you have a completely different relationship at school. All the boss and maybe like, you know, your, your coworkers want to do is stare right at the middle of your brain (laughs) and have your parents expose whatever they can glean for future reference. Right. No matter, no matter how benign or matter how, how honest or how flattering that may be, Mm -hmm. because that's not how people will remember those tidbits of information.
2: Totally been there. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Oh, and um, another band name for this episode? Yeah. Zesty Bashir.
2: Z- zesty Bashir. Different from Gooey Bashir. Zesty right. We Bashir. have, yeah, we have okay. Zesty Bashir. Yeah,
0: um, yeah we have uh, Khan Wannabe Bashir, uh, Gooey Bashir, and now Zesty Bashir. Yeah. I-, I just love it when Picardo says, what, not zesty enough for you? <laughs> oh, my God. Every line just comes off with just the driest... Driest, unapologetic sarcasm. Uh, love him. Love him. So, so good.
2: good. Oh, and, and so there's this little mention of, you know, all the the jobs that uh, Richard Bashir has had. And he he's the, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, which, by the way, was something that Jimmy Diggs kind of said about himself. <laughs> so he, he wrote that into the script. Uh, but Bashir's dad was a, quote, third class steward on a shuttle for six months. To me, to a guy like me, that just raises so many questions like, where are these ships that have a class system, and how do people pay for them, uh, differentiating themselves from first class, or or tourist class, or whatever, and what are the buffets like? Because I need to know
0: all of this before reaching the 24th century. Well, that brings up a good point, because I assume that Jupiter Station is a Starfleet Station, Mm -hmm. or a Federation property, Sure. and the cafe... That is on Jupiter Station that Zimmerman's trying to entice Lita to go back with him to run. Mm-hmm. She said, well, you know, I've never run my own cafe, which means that you would have to have management skills and those would have to be paid for. And you would have to have employees and wait staff of right. which she is now at Quirks. So right. doesn't that encourage a more um, commerce-based system, currency-based system? Things still which have on... value, yeah federation station
2: yeah yeah we were just so hopefully really good at doling that out oh we learned that the Ferengi have a standard five-year marriage contract and i guess that tracks with everything that we know about uh and their culture you know we know moogie um but we really don't know who quark and rom's father is so uh, he could have just moved on after five years so who knows I will say that in this episode, I haven't changed my mind. I still don't love the hologram communicator, even though this time I thought they made a good choice of giving it a different lighting treatment. So that that was a cool way to distinguish and differentiate the Admiral there. And look, I generally love David Livingston's direction, but it was a very odd choice to me to have that long circular tracking shot around the Admiral's hologram as he's talking because it sort of reinforces that this is a person in this space just hanging out with them as opposed to a projection. That was a little weird, but what am I gonna do about it?
0: When I saw that scene, all I could think about was, I wonder what John's going to write about this scene <laughs> in Mission and, Log. And there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about casting to type, because he plays a lot of not just military men, but high-ranking military mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. You know, in yeah. Babylon Five, he played a very high-ranking general. You know, in their in their fleet, um, and now he's a very high-ranking admiral in yeah. this fleet. Right. Right. And, you know, at the end of the episode, as much as I like this episode, now I'll get I'll get far more into detail uh, as we write, uh, wrap this up, but there are those things. You know, mm-hmm. when, say, for instance, um, people that listen to our show and we mention people by name mm-hmm. or we mention something that is just an earwig that just makes them happy, that's what happened to me when I heard the eugenics wars. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. when I heard Admiral Bennett say Khan Singh. Mm-hmm. One thing, though, that really struck me funny is that, why not just say what we all know, Khan nunian Singh? Is there a licensing thing with that? Could they not yeah. say the full name, or did they just i I think he's care? just
2: on a, you know, has a uh, casual name basis with Khan Singh,
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, I,
2: I do like so i thought dr zimmerman's send off was really good it was played correctly his you know as you mentioned his sort of dry sarcasm but his very quick getting over lita and mm. even quicker interest in the alien woman boarding the shuttle it was just played perfectly
0: have you ever heard of the kama sutra i have a few <laughs> <laughs>
2: and that almost trails like, off like you have mm-hmm. to listen for that but yeah what what an
0: opening line I guess that begs the question, though. Then, how interested really was in uh, he, was he in, in Lita? And more more to the point, I, I guess I guess his libido was in a way kind of uploaded to the EMH program later on. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we'll discuss that in a much later episode of Mission Log. Oh. my head cannon.
1: Zimmerman goes back to Jupiter Station to program the emergency cheesy pickup line hologram. Please state the nature of the leisure suit emergency.
2: We'll get back to the show in just a minute. But first, I wanted to tell you about a new sponsor we're welcoming to Mission Log, and that would be Theragon. Now, Theragon is a device that is there to help alleviate stress. Yeah, the stress that everyday life weighs down on us all. Uh, You could be an elite athlete or just a regular person like me, maybe sitting behind a desk talking into a mic. Regardless, muscle pain and muscle tension, those are all very real wherever you fall along that spectrum. Now, Theragun, uh, like I said, is a device that uses percussive therapy to help release the deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. Uh, The new generation four is fantastic. It's quiet and you can use it to soothe your aching muscles. It was actually developed by a doctor who was hurt very badly in a motorcycle accident and needed something to help him alleviate that pain. So I'm gonna try it out. I'm gonna let you all know how it feels and you can try it out for yourself the new Theragon Gen 4 with OLED display, personalized Theragon app and the quiet and power that you need starting at only $199. You can go to theragon.com/missionlog right now and get your Gen 4 Theragon today. That's theragon.com/missionlog. Again, thank you to theragon.com/missionlog for sponsoring this week's show. It's a thing that we haven't talked about in a while on Mission Log, but I know it comes up every now and then. I feel like this is one of those episodes where we're really committing to the idea of Starfleet being full of orphans, you know, and, and some of those literally legitimately they are orphans. Some of them, like Dr. Bashir here, are sort of an orphan by choice, very much cut from the same cloth as Worf just deciding like well uh, my parents aren't like me I don't get along with them so I'll just sort of pretend like they don't exist and when they do show up I will be embarrassed and I will distance myself from them Um, Mm -hmm. that said I'm really glad to see the depth and nuance that a show like Deep Space Nine brings to these ideas about family because it would be one thing if we kind of gave it the TNG treatment which we did which is, here are the Rajenkos, they show up, it's kind of a laugh, and then they go away. But here we've actually done something a bit more profound, and there, there are more themes and messages that come out about that that actually have impact on our understanding of who Bashir is and what this family dynamic is really like in a serious way, not just played
0: for laughs. Yeah, I agree that uh, they they took the what could have been easily directed into a comedy bit, and something with very uh, light-hearted consequences or no consequences at all into something that served the general purpose of the message of the story, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Because up until this point, we've we've delved into the pasts of several of the main cast, but never really understood what makes Bashir tick and why he behaves a certain way. And I think that just inserting his parents and understanding the secret that they've been, they've been protecting all this time informs a great deal about Bashir. And I think that's worth exploring. Well,
2: and there's something at the heart here that is just so very real about the parent and child dynamic, you know, not always to such extremes, um, but the, there's this. There are these competing ideas here. You know, there's this pressure that his parents have put on Julian by virtue of the the extreme lengths that they've gone to. For whose benefit? That that really is sort of the core mm-hmm. of the question here. Is it for his benefit truly, or is it their benefit? And you instantly understand the resentment that he has about that because it can't help but confuse his search for his own identity for his entire life now yes you can absolutely argue that a young julian needed an advantage of some sort whatever that advantage may be um you could also argue that his parents behave selfishly to avoid what shame or their own disappointment uh, uh, however that that emotion is kind of confused in their desire to have something good for their son um so i really like that we ended up with these few dramatic really truly dramatic scenes with the bashir family just full of heart and depth and emotion and they they tap into the multiple sides of the argument and it's really interesting to see the parental guilt
0: that that is
2: just something hanging so heavily over this episode
0: well, I think that that Julian's relationship with his father and his relationship with his mother, his reaction to what happened to him and the choice that was removed from him, uh, it lands, it lands more bitterly on his father than his mother. And his mother tries to make amends by saying that we only did it because we thought that maybe we did something wrong. Mm-hmm. But it, it brings up a more interesting point, I think, about growing up in this post-scarcity Federation future where if, if everything from what we believe is provided for for Federation citizens, then what exactly would a a developmentally challenged Jules Bashir at six year old need to have re encoded in him to compete for what? Yeah. For what right. purpose? Right. Because it's not like he has to go there out there and compete for a job because your needs are provided for. For a career, yes, but that is something that Julian is is in arguably right about not having the choice of growing up as he was, as opposed to as what his parents wanted him to be. Yeah, and why? Well, that,
2: that's There's a really dark question surrounding all of this, which is: could Amsha and Richard Bashir not? raise a son who was developmentally disadvantaged and love him as much as they would love another son, someone who does have all these, uh, advantages and skills and, and capacities. You know, Mm. they, they seem like good people. They seem like people who have a heart and actually genuinely care for their son, but again, so misguided in the way that they expressed that in thinking that's what they had to do is to force him into this uh into this track that he may not have wanted or or didn't necessarily have the capacity to understand if he wanted at the time but then certainly developed the capacity to resent and question it as he got older
0: Well, I mean, it's understandable that you know, like you know, when you when you transpose, I think what the writers were trying to get across that you know you have to be able to have the tools and the intelligence and the capability in order to compete, and in order to become the type of intellectual doctor with all of the uh, with all the accolades that he was able to achieve by virtue of of choosing for Julian to undergo this genetics you know, resequencing this dna resequencing right. but again it begs the question of why did they have to go through all these lengths and put themselves at risk of the law of federation law yeah. when you don't have to compete for those types of positions in order for you to to solidify your position in life
2: yeah but does it signify something about particularly richard's feeling of failure you know, I didn't achieve something great, whatever he puts in his mind as something important. You know, he's not he's not a Jean-Luc Picard out there being the diplomat of the galaxy and saving worlds. He's a guy who's been a third-class steward and a garden designer and worked in all these other places for these short times and not made a name for himself necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I hear what you're saying that, this is the post scarcity world where people don't have to fight for the basics, but maybe that drive for a feeling of importance or permanence is stronger, at least. In I mean, this it version. still could exist.
0: Yeah. You know, it still yeah. could exist. Um, we know from from Balance of Terror that uh, by his own admission that bigotry still exists. Mm-hmm. Captain Kirk said that yep. to Lieutenant Stiles. Um, but this also brings up a, a much larger point. If Bashir knew, if the Bashirs knew that there were going to be extreme legal criminal ramifications because they understand the laws against genetic engineering, why did they let him go down the path of Starfleet? Mm. Because Julian said himself that, Especially if you are a doctor, one, you are not allowed to become a doctor if any type of genetic alterations have occurred in your life. And two, this is one of Starfleet's most severe laws. Right. So right. instead of like saying, you know what, Julian, how about becoming a concert pianist or a cook mm-hmm. or someone like a, an engineer that fixes stuff on Earth? Yeah. But they, it sounds like they encouraged him to go down this track. And yes, they were upset that he left Earth, but they didn't necessarily say that they were upset that he joined Starfleet, which basically is walking right into the lion's den.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. According to his new, uh, according to what they did to him genetically. Yeah. Right. But
2: people think they can get away with things like, you know, my my transgression. Yeah. On paper, it's illegal, but it's serving a higher purpose. It, it, it's You know, ultimately it was the right thing to do because whatever, you know, insert whatever
0: justification you want to put in there. So you're saying it's better to ask, in this case, it's kind of like the whole, the axiom of it's better to ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. Right, right. Yeah, you could definitely say that with them.
2: I I do want to bring up something that's uh, positive and interesting about the Bashir family here. There's something I like that we're still not very specific about where they're from. And I really like that. There's a variety of accents, um, with, particularly with having uh, Dr. Bashir, Julian with his very polished accent, his father with this more working class accent. And it says something about Julian's choice to be different and, and uh, present himself in a more polished way. And I think it also says that their specific ethnicities aren't important. Because I'm reminded of early next gen, when people on the bridge, you know, didn't know, they didn't understand what a France was, (laughs) that that Mm. this is a national, you know, this is a nation, and there is such thing as a national pride and a national heritage. And here, as we go further and further into the future, it's sort of, well, these things get mixed up, you know? Um, Yeah. I think it's important that we know our histories, that we keep traditions, we recognize cultures. At the same time, they keep driving home this idea that this is a great example of a melting pot character. It really is. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I don't know how you landed on mm-hmm. this, but do you think that they purposefully leaned on creating the story specifically for Dr. Bashir? And what I mean specifically mm-hmm. the 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 aspect of his GNA. Uh, resequencing this genetic manipulation mm. because in the cast, he's the ethnically closest to Khan Noonien Singh, meaning mm. that it's easier for the audience to mentally connect the dots and the details of the genetically engineered Khan who um, in Space Seed, Marla MacGyver's looked at the painting and she says, seek, mm. you know, and had that painting of him and right. Coming of being of Middle Eastern descent. Yeah. Much like Bashir. And and,
2: and even with that, even with Khan, you know, we're not super specific in the episode. I I think some of the books try to make it much more specific. uh, But in the episode, they're not super specific about what nation he came from, what he was trying to conquer. We're just sort of painting this ethnically muddy picture. Hmm. And yeah, I I think that even if it wasn't on purpose to connect those two dots— It does make sense. It shows the the two extremes here. Here's a hyper-intelligent but hyper-motivated and benevolent doctor who, as we've seen in DS9, will go to great lengths to try to help anyone in need versus the person who has incredible advantages in intellect and strength but uses it solely to pursue his own power gains.
0: I guess that also begs the question then because he does not go down the route of the, the Superman, mm-hmm. the Superman archetype that, that Khan was, is that because he, he is not Khan meaning that type of mentality mm-hmm. or he chooses to hide himself in sort of this, uh, a, a lesser, um, like a, a lesser type of ambitious nature mm-hmm. so that it doesn't bring attention to himself. But I'm going to get to that. I'm going to elaborate on that. Yeah, no, it, but I, I, I
2: see what you mean, like uh, making choices to not be valedictorian of the class, making choices to not be in a position where he's under the microscope, say, back on Earth or, or on a flagship like the Enterprise. No, he is way out in the middle of nowhere. Which apparently is still a very short shuttle ride from Earth, but, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah. Um, uh, By the way, I do want to point out that I feel like uh, Dr. Zimmerman and Chief O'Brien behaved very unethically for letting that conversation go on between, you know, Hologram Bashir and his parents. If they come in and say hello and they're fooled, okay, done. Done done mm-hmm. you step out of the shadows and go hey what do you think this is our hologram you don't let them come in and uh, pour their hearts out that uh... but I like that there was a consequence I like that Bashir and O'Brien got to have it out I do look this is something that you get a whole episode on but I do kind of wonder you know what we should make of genetic engineering in humans because Star Trek up until now the only other comparison we have is Khan. We, we have the evil flip side of this, and that's it. Now, realistically, here we are in the early 21st century, and we're on the verge of major breakthroughs in genetic ma- manipulation in living beings and humans among them. When You look at uh, CRISPR projects, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I'm glad that in this episode, they make a point of saying that it's been outlawed except for extreme birth defects, because I think that's how we all want that to go Mm -hmm. naturally it does then raise the question about what is extreme and who can decide and then what about the people who decide to skirt those rules anyway again we lucked out here that the people who skirted the rules are the ones who had we hope somebody's best interest in mind even if we can question the totality of their motivations Um, but it turned out okay for them didn't turn out okay for a guy like Khan or the people that he destroyed
0: well that's that's um man this is such a heavy topic right now Uh, because I have I have a hard time trying to justify um, when parents make extreme behavioral decisions for their children Mm -hmm. meaning that these are the choices that this child must must live their lives under, either whether it's religious mm-hmm. or social or even political to some extremes. Sure. Because I can understand the Bashir's screening out any type of genetic defect when when Dr. Bashir was an infant or baby or fetus, an embryo, but not at six years old. Six years old, they see that he's developing in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But they never give him the chance to develop into the person before he, before Julian says when, when that manipulation was done on me, the six year old Jules Bashir died and I was recreated into this monster when, when he was, you know, lamenting the fact uh, to, to achieve. And it's kind of like the transporter effect. Some people mm-hmm. believe that the transporter would never be able to resequence you back to the person you were before you stepped into the transporter the very first time. The pattern buffer only has um a fraction of a decimal of a whatever mm-hmm. of perfection, mm-hmm. which means that at 100% you come back on the other side, not 100%. Yeah. No matter how small the, you know, the the decimal number is. Yep. Does that mean that you have died? Yep. It's a murder machine, <laughs> and Doctor and Dr. McCoy being a doctor, he yeah, knows that. Yeah, yeah, he you does. Know, but that's what, but that's what Julian's saying here. When they resequence my DNA, the DNA, the six-year-old me ceased to exist.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, you know, I've said on mission Luck before. I, I'm not a mind-body dualist. The mind is a product of the brain. So when you take apart the brain and you put it back together, yeah, you you have taken that thing apart, and you're just allowing those uh synapses to be resequenced in another place so even if you think that you quote unquote you have just been moved from point a to point b no the you that existed in place a ceases to exist and the mind that is the product of the brain that is reconstructed at point b then carries on after that split second of well, for lack of a better word, death, (laughs) that occurred in between. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Here's a a, uh, a less, uh, I guess, uh, existentially troubling question. (laughs) Is is Richard Bashir a different person going forward? Um, You know, are his ambitions, his relationships, who is he a couple of years later after prison? And granted, it's minimum security with visits, and he's on earth. But are we to assume, I think, I think we're to assume a happier ending here. Are his and Julian's relationship better and different going forward?
0: Hard to say, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, it, it's hard to say because I think that the schemer, this architect that that Julian lashes out at him, calling him those, you know, those, uh, those names. I think that that's just who Richard... Bashir is and I think in many ways he's a deal maker and he tries to skirt the system by making deals that obviously will benefit him yeah and with with Admiral with Admiral Bennett it is a deal that once again benefits Richard because it allows his son to stay in Starfleet and to practice medicine And honestly, two years in a minimum security Starfleet prison. I mean, is that really hard time? I I know,
2: right? Yeah, sign me up. You got uh, replicators and
0: it's probably in a nice location. Uh, Sure. (laughs) I mean, you know, not not to jump the timeline too much, but we've seen the New Zealand prison facility. Yes, where Tom Paris was. Yeah. It's not terrible. No, no. Not too right. bad. Something that I mentioned earlier that I'd really like to kind of get into. Mm-hmm. So knowing now what we know about Dr. Bashir, knowing that, you know, everything that we've known about him, except for Gooey Bashir. Gooey mm. Bashir was a completely, completely different, different thing. dude. Yeah. Completely different thing. Mm-hmm. So knowing what we knew about Dr. Bashir in the five years that we've gotten to know Julian and knowing how he, you know, he had his behavioral quirks. You know, he, even in the interviews, they said, you know, it was kind of irritating, a little too forthcoming. Mm-hmm. A little creepy ish sometimes, a little stalkery sometimes. Do you think that he chose those behavioral patterns specifically to keep everyone kind of at a distance mm-hmm. and off balance so that they wouldn't really get to know the real him? So, do you want to look at this as in universe or in production?
2: Because, I, I mean, look, in production, the reality is they didn't know. They didn't come up with us until the last minute for the script. Uh, that that this would be the secret. They they knew they knew that they were going to introduce Bashir's parents. They knew that there would be a secret, but they didn't know what it would be. And then they finally, at the eleventh hour, settled on this. Um, but it conveniently informs—I won't say answers—but it informs all those questions that you just asked. Now that's the production reality. I think the in-universe story is, is that yeah, this is very convenient for us to then connect those dots. Now, I I will say this. I think that Bashir early on had a much pricklier personality, definitely got into that creepy territory more than once. Um, But if we are to believe that he is a super genius who is also kind of hiding his tracks, I would say that super genius should also be a nicer guy. Because you would probably pick up those habits, hopefully, from other people around you, and realize that that would also
0: keep people from figuring you out or potentially ratting you out. So, well, I mean, yeah. I, I guess like the the two examples that really come to mind are one: did he purposefully botch his magna cum laude um, exam so that? He would not draw too much attention to him. Yeah.
2: I, I think that's a really good way to look at that. I, I am yeah. totally happy with that bit of retconning.
0: Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> and two, knowing that he can, and this is a hard thing to do. Believe me, I've tried. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to just basically will yourself to be able to throw a triple bullseye out of dartboard. <laughs> you know, and he did it. He could have done it any time he wanted to. That was the point of that final scene. He could have done that at any time. Yep. Which means that he could have done anything at any time that he wanted to in the course of the five years that we've seen him. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But even then, you know, here's a guy who has incredible abilities. But there are still things in the scientific and medical field that are just going to be beyond him because they're beyond the technology we have. They're beyond the timing that he has. So those mm. things keep him humble too.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if he can't fix it, no one can right. really, right? Yeah. Where where is the doctor yeah. Crusher when we need her? <laughs> you know, mm, indeed.
2: Um, Now, look, I I do realize that this is almost a whole other show, but I'd feel remiss if we didn't address this a little bit before we got into our wrap-up, Dr. Zimmerman's actions toward Lita. Uh, How do we feel about that? Because, look, here's the thing. He has every right to be attracted to her. He has every right to bring her flowers, to want to date her, to ask her uh, if he wants to come away to Jupiter Station with him. Sure, fine, he can do that. Um I will definitely draw a line at the pretense of bringing her in for an interview when it was basically like, oh I don't know who she is, she's hot. I'm go- just suddenly going to add her to my list mm-hmm. and then use that as an excuse to ask her out to dinner. Come on.
0: Yeah, that was a little sketchy. Yeah. I'd say, yeah. I'd say. Um, <laughs>
2: now, that said, I, I do feel like the the B-plot of Ram and Lita is treated pretty minor here. I, I like the idea of moving along Rom and Lita's relationship. Uh, it's a, a, a little by rote that it plays out the way it does, meaning just he can't express himself or, or what he thinks of her. So she just pushes him into a corner to get him to say something fine. I feel like I've seen that kind of story before. Um, The the whole, you know, her telling him, if I had a reason to stay, I'd stay. Well, do I have a reason? Look, it's Rom. He's not the brightest bulb. You're going to have to lead him (laughs) no matter what. He is the brightest bulb when it comes to some things, but not this. You've got many, many barriers uh, in, in your relationship with him.
0: I'm talking about Quark throwing shade at engineers. He's an engineer. Yeah. He likes they go with, <laughs> right. they're like, whoa, yeah. hey, nothing wrong mm. with engineers. Um, so I didn't know how the Rom storyline was going to fit into the Bashir storyline, you know, as an A and B plot, until Act 5. Mm-hmm. Until Act 5, where Rom was sitting at the bar, and then Quark basically said, this is the reason why you have Nog. Mm. So yeah. this may be a stretch, but I do think that they fit in, in this way. So think about it in these terms. The Bashirs uh, and the Bashirs, parents of Julian mm-hmm. and, you know, Rom, parent of Nog, they broke their own cultural laws so they could have and provide the best possible future for their sons. So Rom broke his financial contract. And to a Ferengi, I know that sounds, you know, to everyone else, that sounds ludicrous, but when you think about it in, in the context of the universe, that is a huge crime, Yeah, breaking a contract. Yeah. Because it took, so, so his wife's or his father-in-law took him for everything that he was worth and he ended up with a son who court thinks he was just stuck with but he wanted a son. Yeah. So so he sacrificed, in a way, everything for his son because he wanted that longer relationship yeah. with his family unit. And the, and the, the Bashirs did the same thing. They wanted everything to go right for Julian to the point where they even risked criminal activity to do so. So essentially they both chose similar paths and that's how i see both of these stories working together
2: i think you found a great way to tie a and b stories together which don't normally do so <laughs> well done
1: does this new revelation about julian work in other words does he still fit in his jeans
0: So it would uh, behoove me to not presume what I think John would uh, land on and how he would land on this episode, but we are at the very end of our show, and at the end of our show traditionally, as you all may or may not presume, we talk about the morals, meanings, and messages of the episode. So John, how did this episode hold up for you, and did it land where you thought it would land in terms of its overall meaning and message
2: um i you know i think it's just a magnificent episode sid is great the casting of the guest stars wow uh just terrific all over I wish we had more of Bob Picardo in Star Trek overall. I mean, look, I I know we're going to get a lot of him in Voyager, but he just brings so much to the table. Uh, Put him anywhere you want to in Star Trek, and and I'll be happy with that. Um, And this was a really inspired way to use him. Um, Hats off to him, by the way, for being able to play the same guy, himself and his hologram, the same but different wonderful to watch i mean even down to just the mannerisms the body language the hairstyle so so great but the thing about this episode that i think is strong and the production values are very good um not particularly extraordinary although we do have that 2 by 2 scene of the two uh, bob picardos and the two uh, sid uh, in the uh, as the doctor and the hologram this is all about story it's all about family it's all about relationship This episode does what science fiction does well and what Star Trek can do exceptionally well, which is to tell a story that has this scientific and technological pretense that gets us talking. But at its core, it is about family and it's about a relatable family story about people who are maybe trying their best, but making some bad decisions along the way. And then how do you deal with that? How do you reconcile? How do you forgive? And how do you move forward? So that's really nice to see. At its worst, if you were to say DS9 is like a soap opera because you have these flawed, multifaceted characters who are all trying to get along, and you have layers of relationships, okay, you you could sort of take that to an extreme. But I think this is a very necessary story because we've had so many of our prominent characters in Star Trek who maybe you hint at a family problem or you hint at a complex and maybe challenged childhood, but you don't really go there. I wouldn't say that in um, The Icarus Factor in Next Gen, when Riker meets his father, well, doesn't meet, but he, he hangs out with his father and, you know, they fight it out. It's a good episode, but... I feel like it didn't quite go far enough. This one, I feel like, has a lot more heart at its heart. Uh, so mm-hmm. it holds up for me much, much better. What about you?
0: Yeah, I enjoyed this episode quite a bit. And it's uh, it's certainly a nice kind of a narrative change of pace after the last few episodes, which oh, were yeah. you know very heavy uh, for just from a, a world-building standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that Dr. Bashir was able to get his his character focus, like his true character focus, finally. There have been great Dr. Bashir episodes, don't get me wrong, but this episode delves into the history of his character and the reason why he is who he is and, and how he's going to move forward from this. And it's just a very strong, morally impactful episode. And Sid's performance at the end, especially the confrontation he had with, with Richard, oh. that was... Phenomenal, and it's rare—at least up until this point—because I have not seen Deep Space Nine past this, except for maybe one or two episodes, which you just can't help (laughs) not get get around. But you don't see this kind of performance, or I don't think they craft these types of scenes for Sid knowing his talent nearly enough, because he's that good when he's given this material to work with. And as much as that was a great scene, um, something that really just tugged at me emotionally was having that fire between father and son get kind of, you know, uh, distinguished and dissipated by the mother's perspective, by Amsha's perspective. Yes, yes. And just having her plead with Julian to see it a different way and to see it through the fear and the guilt and the doubt of... Maybe it's something that she did. Yeah. Maybe it was a, f- a failure on her part. Maybe she did something that didn't protect him in the infancy uh, before he was born. And that's something that she couldn't live with. So they had to make that choice because they were racked with guilt that they didn't, that she didn't give birth to a normal, healthy, fully developed cognitive child. Yeah. Which is killing her on a daily basis, watching him slip behind all those other children who are normal. Yeah. So that, that is a very powerful plea and uh, a a perfect real-time example of why parents would do these things make these choices isn't that
2: so kind of tough to to hear yourself even say those words you know the, the default position is that the parent needs to love their child regardless regardless you know and, and to introduce these sort of conditional layers on top of it well they're not exceeding here. They're not following this particular path that I like. They're not, it, it, there is a fine line that becomes more and more difficult the longer it goes on between giving a child a push and giving them advantage and nurturing and helping them along to truly achieve their best potential versus what is it that I as the parent am getting out of it. And, you know, I sort of brought that up earlier, which was, is it to avoid disappointment? Is it to avoid embarrassment? Is it some desire for, uh, you know, social or intrafamilial jockeying for position? It's all this ugly stuff that comes up as competitive humans That. In this, as many advances, as many advantages as we see in the 24th century, there's still going to be some people who don't quite cut it and then make awful choices, potentially, of um, uh, 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 what to do about it. You know, this is an episode where there's not necessarily, as we've sometimes called it, the you-see-to-me moment. Like, this is what you do. This is a story where the morals, meanings, messages are gray and nebulous, but they, they settle in this complex emotional space about family relationships. And I think there are some messages to be drawn out here. You know, there's a big question around honesty. When it comes to the Bashir family, Julian has not been able to be honest about who he is. Richard and Amsha have not been able to be honest about what they did and again, what their motivations were. And this has been the, the center of this fight between them for decades now. So the fact that that honesty was never expressed and never played out between them has really been a detriment to all of them. And within that, things like respect fall away, too, because clearly Julian does not respect his parents for their decisions. But there is something here to be said about being prepared to face consequences. There's something admirable about Julian just saying, like, no, this is what happened. I need to face up to this. I'm going to go. This I'm I'm going to go do what needs to be done. Something also admirable to be said about Richard facing those consequences and jumping in the line of fire before Julian could do that. Um, I'm good with a solution there to their problem. That's okay. Someone broke the law, but the punishment is merciful and understanding what's really at stake here. So I thought that actually, if you're going to have an episode that has a happy ending, (laughs) this is one way to do that. There's an interesting existential thing. I'm I'm glad you brought up the transporter, because that existential question can also really be explored with this episode. Who is the real you? Bashir, Dr. Bashir, Julian, says that he's a fraud. Since he's a different person after the genetic treatments than he was before, I mean, he doesn't say he's a fraud, but he, he's different. That child Jules
0: died, than Julian. Would... Oh no, he he clearly said he was a he fraud. He did. Did in he say episode. use the word he fraud? He said that. Okay, yeah. okay. He says I am a fraud. He said that to Marcus. Okay. Oh
2: right, right, He absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. And saying something like that, you know, the the question to me becomes, well, so what? You know, what was a developmentally challenged Bashir any more real than this Bashir? Is this Bashir more real than that development channel, uh, developmentally uh, challenged Bashir? What about people who have traumatic injuries, who have a major change in their life, location, occupation, family, what, whatever? You know, that person before that event ceased to exist and now becomes someone else, sometimes very slowly, sometimes very dramatically but the point is they change and it's very difficult to point to one place and say oh no 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 this is the one that's the real one this other one isn't and I'm not saying that that is a that that's anything that they settle on in this episode it's more of just sort of a a point of concern and clearly deep confusion for a guy like Julian so we can feel some sympathy for that
0: yeah you know it's uh I didn't know where I was going to land with this episode because I thought that this episode was taking me down the path of a story about parenting Mm -hmm. because Deep Space Nine, so far as as I've seen, has a very strong track record of showing the dynamics between how children and in this case, some of the main characters, inherit the fallout of their parents' decisions. And we've seen that happen in in several of the recent episodes, say with Tane and Garrick, or with Zial and Ducat, um, even to some degree Benjamin and Jake, and and now Julian and Richard. So I settled more and landed more on choices and consequences, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to exclude the B plot uh, with Ram, because Ram is a father and he made choices that had consequences. But in in the end, he he has a son of which he wanted, but. The consequences were everything else in his life was summarily ruined based on Frankie culture. So that's where I, I made the analogy between them and uh, Ram and his, his predicament with the Bashirs because they made a choice. They made a choice to improve the life of their son. Mm-hmm. But this is where I have a problem with, with this particular narrative is that in that choice, Jules, six-year-old Jules, never had a say in that decision. Yeah. So... He said, Julian said, he didn't know who he could have become if left to live the life of who he was and not what his parents wanted him to be. So in hindsight, it's easy to find fault in that decision and and sympathize with Julian's anger towards what he perceives as as a selfish choice on his father's part, not to be saddled with a developmentally challenged child. But at the same time, can we truly find fault with the most honest intent of Richard's decision? And then, like you said, what would what would be the better life? Because look at all of the accomplishments that Julian has achieved as a doctor. He saved lives. He's positively affected the lives of his coworkers. And obviously, he uh, has affected the lives of Miles O'Brien and the O'Briens. But at the same time, though, I, I, there's a huge contradiction with what's being said here. Because in the same time, what could he have become if he wasn't genetically manipulated? Exactly. Who would that Jules right. Bashir? Not Julian Bashir. Who would that Jules Bashir could have become? In this post-scarcity society of everything being provided for you in order for you to live your best life under the Federation, he could have been an artist he yeah. could have been a poet. He could have been a musician. He could have just as easily been something great, but not in the type of greatness that Richard, more so than probably Amsha, wanted for Jules. That was a choice that was taken away from him. Yeah. And that Julian Bashir could have easily been something or someone that other people could have found inspiration from and those parents could have loved.
2: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and shabam! Robin. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com.
0: On the next Mission Log, a simple investigation.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com. Okay, so, this wasn't a Bigfoot level crossover, but how would you rate it against Kill Oscar?